Well, um, 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 12, is where we'll be this morning. And uh, this is an interesting start to the letter. After Paul spent some time focusing on some commonalities that he has with the Corinthians and sharing some of his hardships, he begins to address personal issues with this church. And there were many personal issues that Paul had with this church. He, of course, in the opening verses, focused on the comfort of God that we all share as believers. Those sweet verses 4 and 5, 3, 4, and 5, that God comforts us and we share in that. He shared, as Tyler showed us last week in verses 8 through 11, uh, he shares about his hardships and how their prayers were impactful during his time of hardship. But now it's time to start addressing the not fun stuff. And he's going to do this quite a bit through the letter. He has many issues with this church, and for our purposes this morning, it's helpful for you to bear in mind that one of the biggest issues is that there were false apostles in this church. There were false teachers in the church, but more than that, there were false apostles, people saying that they were specifically sent by God to speak from God to direct the church. That's a pretty big claim. And Paul, in chapter 11, calls them false. But they're the ones causing trouble here. And so let's start reading in verse 12 together. We can start wrapping our minds around how Paul is addressing this. In 2 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 12, Paul says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, We have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Well, these uh, Corinthian believers... They were hearing from Paul in a letter as opposed to in person because Paul had some plans and God said no. Paul's plan was to be with them in person, was to come see them. But don't you know that God sometimes says no? We don't really like to talk about those. We like to talk about the ones he says yes to. And we say, God answered my prayer. And what we usually mean is God said yes. But no is also an answer, right? No is also an answer. Sometimes he also says, wait. But it seems as though, for the moment, Paul was dealing with a no from God, that he wasn't going to go to the Corinthians. But there's a problem, because Paul had told the Corinthians he was coming. He had already let them know in his previous letter that he would be on his way. Well, when God said no, there were some false apostles who took advantage of this. Now, Paul was a missionary, of course. He was an apostle of the church, but he was also a missionary. He traveled around and he planted churches all over the place. I mean, God used Paul in a special way to get Christianity out, to get Christianity out of just Jerusalem and that surrounding area, but really starting to reach the ends of the earth. And when you are a missionary, particularly a church-planting, traveling missionary, you have to make plans and call audibles all the time. Think of uh, our missionary Fernando that we just saw in the, the video there. I know he's in a season of life right now where he's having to call a lot of audibles. He had made plans. He had all kinds of plans for the holidays, but 
certain things didn't pan out. He had to come back to the United States unexpectedly, and they're trying to make their way back to Ecuador, and it's confusing. It's confusing when you're a traveling missionary because God will sometimes shut the door, won't He? Other times, He gives you a wide open lane. It's like a runway with lights, and it's up to you to walk through it. And we can sometimes be nervous when God makes the path so clear. But there are times, too, when He shuts the door. And the false apostles were using this moment in Paul's life to judge Paul and to spread gossip and and slander in the church to disparage Paul. Now, you'll notice in life, there are certain people who have selfish ambition, people who want personal gain in their lives, and they really like to take advantage of moments like this. Whoever is in the position that they want, they're just waiting for one thing to go wrong so they can sweep, sweep in and just make a false accusation and judge and spread rumors. That's what these false apostles were doing. There was no benefit of the doubt. These people who were gossiping about Paul weren't saying, well, we should just believe the best. You know, that's what love does, right? 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things. That means you give people the benefit of the doubt and you hope for the best. Love hopes all things. These false apostles weren't doing that. You you can almost imagine the words being spread, oh, that Paul, he's a liar. He said he was going to be here. Didn't he know we had this event? Where is he? Paul's a liar. Paul doesn't care. Well, he cares about himself. You know. did, you, did you hear that from George? Well, I heard that from Mary, you know, that Paul, he's just really selfish. And just, it spread through the church. And so now Paul's writing them this letter, and he has a lot of things he wants to say. Because these are his brothers and sisters in Christ, yet they've been deceived by false apostles. He's been wrongly accused. And for those of you who have ever been wrongly accused, I'm assuming some of you have, you know how emotionally draining that is to be painted as somebody you're not, how frustrating it is to deal and deal with and dispel rumors and gossip. Well, Paul is going to be doing that in our passage today, starting to do that. And he starts in an interesting place in verse 12. He talks about their proud confidence. Remember, it's not just Paul, but it's Paul and Timothy and whoever else was joining them as traveling companions. Their proud confidence, the testimony of their conscience, it says in verse 12. And then he goes on to describe that. So I want to start there in the middle of the testimony of their conscience, these two descriptors that he gives, holiness and godly sincerity. So Paul starts here by defining his character, and we're going to see that come up more and more in the the letter, and he's listing out these attributes, these tested qualities that he had, that Timothy had, that the rest of them had, that gave them confidence in the face of judgment, that as they were being judged wrongly by false apostles, they could still stand with confidence and say, I'm not going to wither in the, the bright sun of your judgment, but instead we can stand strong. And the first reason is because of their holiness, it says. What a, what a big, strong, powerful word. Perhaps a frightening word for some of us. Paul says that there's proud confidence in the testimony of their conscience because they behaved in holiness. This means, of course, moral uprightness, doing the right thing, behaving appropriately. Now, there is a possibility that 
In the Greek here, it actually says simplicity. In fact, some of your translations might say that. In simplicity, that means simplicity of mind, to have an unwavering commitment, to be so devoted and so focused. And that kind of gets you to the same place as holiness, doesn't it? To be unwavering and committed, to be simple of mind. That was the first aspect of the testimony of their conscience. But secondly, you see that other phrase there, that term, godly sincerity. Godly sincerity. Now that term means integrity. With holiness and true integrity, they behaved such. They performed their duties, they carried out their ministry with integrity. And that should be the goal of every Christian, shouldn't it? This isn't just for Paul, this isn't just for apostles, this isn't just for missionaries, but holiness and integrity, that's the calling on every single Christian. Those who bear God's name, that we would take God's name with us throughout our lives, whether we're at church, whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're out with the boys, out with the girls, whatever the case may be. Integrity, holiness, simplicity of mind. Later on in Paul's life, he wrote a letter to Timothy. And in that first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see that, that theme there of integrity throughout that whole statement? And then later on in the same chapter, in verse 18, Paul says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So what's the alternative to a good conscience? Well, quite possibly shipwreck of your faith. What's the alternative to integrity? Well, destruction. But as we keep a good conscience, as we live with godly sincerity, as it says here, and integrity, we know that we can have confidence in what God is doing. The goal of the Christian should be to be found true, true to your identity, true to who you say you are. Now, this word for godly sincerity in the Greek, it is just one word there in verse 12, holiness and godly sincerity. The word is a compound word meaning sun judgment, S-U-N, sun judgment. And you might wonder what on earth how they got from sun judgment to integrity. Well, you can imagine as you were buying things on the streets in those days, perhaps something that was pottery made of clay or maybe something made of glass or ceramics or something, and you take it, how do you know if it'll hold water? It'll hold any liquid? Well, you hold it up to the sun and you examine for any cracks. And the power of the sun, the light of the sun shines on the object and informs you of a good judgment call. You lift one up and say, ooh, I'll set that there for the next shopper and I'll look at this one, right? Perhaps some of you do that in the produce section when you're judging fruit. Uh, I say, oh, not, not, the, not this one. I'll take this one. Well, it's, it's judgment. It's through the power of the sun being judged to see if you have integrity. Well, Paul here is saying that they passed the test. They passed the test. He could be examined by God. He could be examined knowing that God has an all-seeing eye. And he says, we're confident. Now that is a pretty strong statement. And I will come back to what this means, but look at the start of verse 12 again. He says, our proud confidence is this. Or maybe yours says boasting. 
Boasting? Pride? Proud? Confidence? Aren't these really, really strong words? They are. Well, before anyone starts thinking that Paul was saying he was accomplishing this by his own piety (laughs) or by his own effort, look at what he says in that verse. His holiness and his godly sincerity, it did not come from fleshly wisdom, did it? It didn't come from the flesh at all, but in the grace of God. Amen? That his confidence, his proud confidence was in the grace of God. How was was Paul's life achieved? How was Timothy's life achieved as men of integrity, men of holiness, devoted men with simplicity of mind? Well, it was accomplished through the grace of God. And that's as opposed to the flesh. They did not accomplish a life of integrity through some sort of cunning or building a system of appearances just to wow people. They weren't hypocrites. They weren't coming up with some sort of method so that everybody would think they're really, really holy guys. Now, there are people out there like that, aren't there? And Paul addresses them later in this letter. Peddlers of God's Word, he says. That's not us. Paul says that we are men of uprightness, of integrity. And we see here quite simply that effective Christian service is carried out in holy devotion by God's grace. By God's grace for you to be an effective Christian. There needs to be devotion to God, true love for God and His people, integrity in your life, relying on His power to do this through you day by day. And Paul says here in verse 12 that he was consistent in this. Look at the end of verse 12. This was happening whether they were in the world or whether they were with the Corinthians. They've conducted themselves this way in the world and especially toward you, Corinthians, you should know. Paul says, these attributes were manifest among you. Go back to his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, just a few pages back. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and look at how Paul describes this in that section. 1 Corinthians 4, 4, along with verse 5. I mean, this is just a, a very remarkable statement for Paul to make. He says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Now, we just have to sit in that for just a moment here, don't we? I am conscious of nothing against myself, Paul says. Well, think harder, Paul, right? (laughs) That's my response. Think a little harder. And yet, look at what he says. Yet I am not by this acquitted. That doesn't get me off the hook. I'm not omniscient. I'm not all-seeing, all-knowing. I'm not omnipresent. God is, and God is my judge. And he says that quite plainly. The one who examines me is the Lord. Verse 5, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul had an integrity about him, and yet he knew that his whole life was subject to the grace of God. He searched things out to a degree in his life, things that he needed to change, things he needed to repent of. He searched those things out, and he kept short accounts with God, apparently. I'm conscious of nothing. I'm up to date on my repentance. Some of you are up to date on your shots. Paul was up to date on his repentance. That's what he was saying. And yet, by this, I am not free. My knowledge doesn't set me free. God is my judge. And we're seeing here in our passage today that he relied on the grace of the judge the grace of God 
in his standing. Well, this is true integrity. Paul, you get the feeling here, Paul wasn't one way on Sunday and another way, another day of the week, right? I got a feeling if you met Paul on a really bad Tuesday, he was still Paul. And that, again, should be our goal. Perhaps you've known a hypocrite, someone who was one way when you interacted with him or her here in this building on a Sunday morning, but you saw him at the store later and, whoa, what was going on there? Or you overheard a conversation they were having and, ee, what, what was that about? That's not the person I know. We are not to be hypocrites. We are to be people of integrity. And Paul tells them here in our passage today, verses 13 and 14, that he had no hidden agendas with them. He's saying, look, what you see is what you get. Verse 13, we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. That's perhaps a little confusing to understand, but all Paul is saying in verse 13 there is that his message was plain and his message was intended to be received plainly by the Corinthians. The NLT, the New Living Translation, does a good job of paraphrasing this a bit. It says, our letters have been straightforward. That's what Paul's telling them. And there's nothing written between the lines and nothing you can't understand. I hope someday someday you will fully understand us. That's what Paul's communicating to them. There's nothing secretive. There's nothing hidden. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm not a con artist, Paul's saying. I'm no huckster. I'm here to give you the truth by the grace of God. And so God has called us to heed this word, to follow Paul's example, to be consistent in our conduct at home and at church and everywhere. And Paul and his companions knew that they had that. And Paul was not intimidated by these false apostles who said that he was one way with them and another way in the real world. Turn with me in the same book, 2 Corinthians, to chapter 10. Look at how he talks about these gossipers. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 8. I love how he just confronts things head on. I, I admire that about Paul. In 2 Corinthians 10, 8, Paul writes, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. Paul's putting his foot down. I will not be put to shame. Verse 9, For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, His letters are weighty and strong, but His personal presence is unimpressive and His speech contemptible. It's like snakes. You can hear them slithering as they say it. Verse 11, Let such a person consider this that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Paul says, I'm no hypocrite, and you're going to find out. (laughs) I am no hypocrite. So what are we learning here in just verse 12? We're spending quite a bit of time marinating on verse 12 because it's a very important verse to understand what follows. Well, Christian conduct must be taken seriously in this life. I hope you're getting that from this verse. Christian conduct must be taken seriously in this life for the sake of conscience and for the sake of our impact for the gospel. To put it plainly, 
God will not bless rebellion. He just won't. God won't bless hypocrisy. God won't bless the manipulating of other people, people who are out for their own selfish gain. But if we want to make a difference for God, if we want to serve God well with integrity, we must be sincere. We must look at our own heart and from sincerity of heart, live for God and to serve others. Notice here in verse 12 that he says that this confidence that he has comes from the testimony of our conscience. Did you know that your conscience has a testimony? Your conscience speaks? That aspect of you, that immaterial aspect of you, that kind of alerts you when you're doing something wrong? Uh, John MacArthur compares the conscience to uh, like the in-dash warning system on a car. I think that's pretty good. Like the check engine light. Something's going wrong. It's your conscience saying, this isn't right. Your conscience speaks in that sense. Your conscience has a testimony. And your conscience affects you. It absolutely does. Therefore, we are to keep good consciences. You want to serve God effectively? You must keep a good conscience. You must repent when you need to repent and live for God. How do you acquire a good conscience? How do you get the confidence that Paul had? I mean, again, we, we do well to just kind of sit on this first phrase, our proud confidence is this. How do you get to that point where you can boast in the testimony of your conscience? Well, let me give you three steps. And these are three steps for Christians. Because to have a good conscience, you first have to have a clean conscience. And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that our consciences are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And unless your conscience has been purified through faith in what Jesus has done, unless you've received a washed conscience, you're, you're not going to have a good conscience. Okay? And so the goal is, of course, to understand the gospel, to believe the gospel. And now as a Christian, how do you keep a good conscience with God? Well, step one, simply, is embrace the Word of God. As Christians, we can sometimes revert back to our old thinking, the old self, and we can be slow to accept what God has said, can't we? We can go back in our flesh, that old man, and start to question what God has said, that old lie from the garden. Has God really said? Does that really apply to me? Well, let's embrace the Word. That's step number one. Number two, repent of sin. And this, of course, is tied to the first one, as we're in the Word of God and we understand by the renewing of our mind, by hearing from God, by getting the message that we need from God, and we're confronted with our own sin and the Holy Spirit convicts us, we must repent. Go to God directly, quickly, and to say, Lord, I am wrong. Would you forgive me on the basis of what Jesus has done? Please forgive me and restore me and renew my mind. Third step. Devote yourself to Him daily. Again, this is for the Christian. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this isn't for you. You can't do this. But for the Christian, day by day, we are to devote ourselves to Him daily in all areas of life. And that is really true worship, isn't it? Worship isn't something you do once a week when other people are looking at you. Worship is what you do 24-7, 365 from the heart when no one is looking. And for the Christian to keep a good conscience as we embrace His Word and we repent of sin as we're convicted, 
We devote ourselves to God daily. And there's an amazing picture of what repentance looks like in our New Testament. Turn forward with me to the book of Ephesians, just a few pages past the end of 2 Corinthians, of course. There's Galatians and then Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. And look at what Paul says to this church, this group of believers, Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Speaking of the new life they are to have in Christ through this daily embracing the word, repenting of sin, and committing themselves to God. Ephesians 4, 25, it says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Oh, you could spend the rest of your life fulfilling verse 27, right? Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What a beautiful picture of repentance. Let the angry man be angry no longer. The malicious woman be malicious no longer. Him who steals, steal no longer, but labor with his hands. Put those things aside and commit yourselves to God by his grace. And you know that sweet promise of 1 John 1, 9? It starts with, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the promise for the Christian. He also says in this letter, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So for the one who has sin and you're confronted with your sin, you're convicted of your sin, by God's grace, you want to turn to God, you want to live for God, go right to Him and confess. He stands ready to forgive. Isn't this amazing news that God is ready to forgive? He, he's, he's ready 24-7. We can go directly to God and the promise for the believer is this. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. It's an amazing reality for the believer. Homer Kent does a good job of describing this in his commentary. He says, When Christians are enlightened by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit and then walk in full harmony with that knowledge, their consciences will approve their actions. Isn't that so true? You can have a good conscience. I hope many of you are experiencing a good conscience today. You can have a good conscience. You can do so by embracing the Word of God, by turning to God daily, repenting when you need to repent, committing your way to Him. And you can have this same proud confidence that Paul and Timothy had. Now, we do have to address that. Again, look at the beginning of verse 12. It does seem a little out of place. We don't like that word proud as Christians because we know that pride is the mother that's pregnant with all the sins. Pride is the root of everything here. Pride is the first sin. Satan said, I will make myself like the Most High. 
I'm going to be up there judging everything. I'm going to be just like God. And instead of going up, he went down. Pride is the cause of the fall. And so when we see a phrase like this, proud confidence, we have to kind of analyze that for a moment. We have to take note of this boasting that Paul had. It's not just in verse 12. You see it also in verse 14. He says um, that we are your reason to be proud, and you are our reason to be proud. You see that in the middle of the verse? What What an interesting thing. Well, the definition really is proud confidence. I think that's a great translation, proud confidence. But what we must make note of here is that Paul is not finding proud confidence in himself or from himself, okay? So if you're taking notes, make sure you clear that up in your notes. His proud confidence is not in himself. His proud confidence is not from himself, but his proud confidence is in God. Paul, Timothy, the whole gang, as they're writing this, their confidence was in God's work, not in their own work, but in God's work. And you can see this perhaps just across the page in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 4, look at what Paul says. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Well, there's our word again, confidence. This is chapter 3, verse 4. And then look at the very next uh, verse. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So their confidence was not in themselves. It was not in their earning something with God. They didn't gain their salvation by their strength and say, wow, we are self-sufficient people. That's not what Paul's saying at all. And here as a traveling missionary, even as an apostle, Paul is not saying, I am all that I need and I'm proud of that. That's not his boasting. That's not his proud confidence. But he says in verse 14 that the Corinthians are his reason for boasting. The Corinthians themselves are his reason for proud confidence. Well, how could that be? And how could Paul and Timothy be the reason for the Corinthians' confidence? It's because their confidence and their boasting is in the Lord and what the Lord is doing to build His church. As they look and see God's work in the world to redeem people, and not only that, but to build them up as redeemed people, to edify them, to bring them to the point of maturity, to bring them to the point of completion, they are boasting in that work of the Lord. You remember Jeremiah chapter 9? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But the boast that the man of God or the woman of God is to have is to be in the Lord. If you're going to boast, boast of this, the Lord's work. And where do we see the Lord's work? In and through people. We see the work of God in redemption through people. As people come to know the Lord and are baptized and saved, not in that order, saved and then baptized, as they come to know the Lord... We see the work of God and we have great reason to rejoice and we have great confidence in this life and what God is doing in them and, of course, in us as He builds a life of integrity and moral uprightness by His grace. Paul rejected fleshly wisdom. You see that in verse 12. This isn't in fleshly wisdom. This is all in the grace of God. His focus was on the work of God. 
And in this sense, we too, today, we can have confidence and we can boast in the evidence of God's work. And this confidence extends all the way to our glorification. Look again at verse 14. He says that they're mutually boasting in each other. Corinthians boasting in Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy boasting in the Corinthians. And this will be happening even in the day of our Lord Jesus. All the way till the end, there is rejoicing and boasting and proud confidence in the work of God. I think that's pretty amazing. For eternity, we'll be rejoicing in each other in our glorified state as we fellowship with one another. Well, from here, Paul must explain what happened on that trip and his changed plans. Perhaps you kind of forgot that's what we were talking about at the beginning. I forgot. Uh, Paul is talking about his changed plans, and he picks that up again in verse 15. Remember, he was being judged about his plans, and so he's defending his character, and then he's going to go into some details about what happened. What's interesting is that though he was confident in himself because of what God has done, he was confident in his integrity, that he still felt the need to explain to them a little bit. I think that's pretty interesting because he could have just said, shut up. That could have been his letter. (laughs) For those of you who are gossiping, stop. You don't need to know what I've been up to. God knows. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Shut your mouth. That's all he could have said. But instead, he gives them some more detail. It's a gracious man. Okay, verse 15. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you be helped on my journey to Judea. So we're just barely going to touch on these verses and we're going to pick back up here next week. But you'll notice in verse 15, Paul says that he decided to make his visit to them based on this confidence. He says plainly, in this confidence, I intended to come to you. That's why he initially made the plan. And he wanted to bless them. As an apostle of God, he wanted to be a blessing to them. Now, he originally made these plans in that other letter to them, as I stated to you. Turn back a page if you need to, to 1 Corinthians 16. It's the chapter right before this one. In 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 5, look at what Paul was saying then. He says, I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, he said so confidently, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. And there's that phrase, right? The Lord did not permit. Verse 8, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are now many adversaries. So initially, Paul's plan was to go through Macedonia, which is north of Corinth, and then come down into Corinth, helped out by them, and go back through Macedonia. So to come through Macedonia to the Corinthians, and then go back to Macedonia. Well, now, Paul says in our letter that we're looking at today in verse 15, or verse 16, rather, he was going to go to them first and then go into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to turn around and come back to Corinth. So his plans had even changed since he wrote the letter in 1 Corinthians. And both of those plans, God said, no, you're not doing either one of those things. And the Corinthians, of course, were suffering from all sorts of gossip that was causing them to judge Paul and question his integrity. Well, like I said, missionaries who travel deal with changing plans all the time. That's just a reality. 
And next week, we'll talk about the value of making plans and how we can consider changed plans when God changes our plans. But let's look again here and see that Paul's desired purpose, verse 15, his desired purpose was to offer the Corinthians a second experience with grace. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? In the New American Standard, it says in verse 15 that he wanted to come to them so that you might twice receive a blessing. Okay, grace is really the better translation there. Well, let's talk about what he did not mean, and then I'll talk about what he did mean, and we'll close there. When Paul said that he wanted to give them a second experience with grace, he was not talking about some second anointing by the Spirit or some post-conversion experience that all people are to have. You'll hear this sometimes in some movements, that there's a second work of grace that takes place in the lives of people, uh, lives of Christians. Their first experience with grace was when they got saved, but there's a second work that has to take place. I don't think that's in Paul's view at all in this phrase. He's also not saying this phrase like it's some egotistical comment. Wouldn't this just be so egotistical of you to say to somebody, I wanted to come back to you so you could have a second blessing. I'm just a walking blessing. Where I go, there are grace flowers that pop up all over the place. Well, I don't think Paul thought he was anything more than the chief of sinners. That's a phrase he uses, don't you know? He was an apostle. He held the office of apostle, that's true. But he called himself the chief of sinners. So what was he saying? Well, I think there was a recognition in Paul's mind of his office as an apostle as a gift to the church. In fact, we saw that in the passage we read earlier in chapter 10. He says that if he's boasting in his authority, what he's boasting in is that the Lord is building up his church. He's been, he's been given as an apostle to the church for building them up. And so Paul is saying that as an apostle, this work that God has given him to do and a supernatural power that God has given him, he may build up the church. And isn't that a blessing to any church? Well, of course it is. Uh, Paul says later in this letter that there were signs and wonders that accompanied the apostles. And so as he came to them, perhaps there would be healing. Perhaps there would be all sorts of interesting ways that the Lord would build this church up. And that would, of course, fall under the category of blessing or another work of grace. Because of God's grace, because of God's enabling and efficacious power through Paul, he said they would be blessed again by his presence. And I, I love this too, at the same time as he's talking about his office of apostle being a, a gift to the church, a blessing to the church. Look at what he says in verse 16 again, that he would be helped by them. So he comes to them and he says, I want to be used by God as a blessing to you and give you the opportunity to help me out, to feed me, give me a place to sleep, send me on my way with whatever kind of rations I need. He still wasn't shy about asking for help, even though recognizing he was the apostle here, because he really cared about partnership in the gospel. Even with this church, a church that had so many problems, he still wanted to partner with them in the gospel. And I think that's absolutely exemplary for us today. All the problems and issues and and relationship strain that there may be among Christians, we should still have this heart for one another. We should still have a heart to share with one another to partner with one another, to press one another forward in gospel ministry and effectiveness and helping each other maintain lives of integrity 
that the testimony of our conscience would be good and clear, and that we would serve God well together. That's what Paul was seeking to communicate to this church while also seeking to restore some sort of fellowship. So many people would give up on the Corinthians, and Paul still wanted to work with them and partner with them, and that's amazing. And it does inform us uh, that there's hope for us. Because you look at these Corinthians, and if there was hope for the Corinthians, there's hope for us. There's hope for the Paisonians and the Santaquinites and whatever else you are, all right? <laughs> all right, let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your most holy word. We thank you for your work in us through your word and by your grace. Help us to serve you well in this life as we just want to honor you, whether we're at church, home, wherever we may be that you would convict us of sin and draw us nearer to you day by day, that we would have a good conscience, and that we would walk in great confidence knowing that this is your work, that you are at work in us and through us. It's your power, and there's no reason for us to shrink back because you're a good God, a faithful God, who will see this project through to the end. You've begun the work, and you will complete it in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.